0: Into glasses i'm bailey and i'm katie and
1: today we have uh, a book to talk about because our podcast is partially about books
0: <laughs> yeah i guess you could say that uh books and fandom and book news of which there is some breaking stuff happening that i know we have uh we have the beginnings of thoughts on at least so this is of course about brandon sanderson's kickstarter i did trap my boyfriend and his roommate into like a 10 minute rant
1: where i just like stood in the center of the room and and talked about it last night so uh i do <laughs> apologize for that but this this is truly happening 28 hours ish prior to recording so there's not like a whole lot going on about it right now but it just we, we've got the ick and we want to have some comments about it
0: yeah so if you're not familiar or if you're less extremely online than we are what is happening is that brandon sanderson is running a kickstarter for four secret novels that he wrote throughout quarantine Uh, and it has so far as of the time of recording raised over 17 million dollars and so to to be clear like he is
1: obviously a well-known published author who regularly works with one of the biggest fantasy publishers in the industry and he wrote these like quote-unquote extra novels because he had so much more time during the pandemic and so he's doing this special Kickstarter thing to, essentially, as you said this morning, Katie, like, pre-order the books. You can choose audiobooks, you can choose ebooks, you can choose special edition hardbounds, and if you purchase a certain level on the um, Kickstarter, you also get these, like, swag crates, like, so four months of the year, you get a book delivered, and then the other eight months, you get a swag crate, and... I, th- that's the whole concept. So, like, you are actually getting a product, but it's still. It feels very weird for, like, a very well known, extremely popular published author to be using Kickstarter as a platform.
0: Yeah, there are a couple of things that stick out to me as pretty strange about this whole thing. One is the pre order thing. First of all, the first reward or whatever is scheduled for January 2023. So people are are pre-ordering this nine months in advance, which is a pretty steep pre-order. And the top tier is $500 plus shipping, which to be fair, you get a lot of content for that. You get uh, all four premium hardcovers, all four audiobooks, all four ebooks, and the eight swag boxes. So it's not, I'm not trying to say anything about like Value. The, the worth for the money. Yeah, the value yeah. is certainly there. But it, it just is is odd that it's basically a weird pre-order campaign through Kickstarter. I, I don't like generally that people use crowdfunding as like a substitute for a pre-order campaign. And the thing that specifically gives me kind of the ick about it is that it feels like it's creating this artificial... FOMO this artificial exclusivity even though anyone can back the project because you can see how much money it's raised how many people have already like pledged quote-unquote slash pre-ordered and so it's like creating this club that people want to be a part of by adding to the 17 million million dollar total I don't know I don't feel great about it no and I'm almost
1: certain that at some point after but maybe in 2024, when like these rewards have all been meted out, you're probably going to be able to purchase these ebooks and audiobooks. Like they may never be a special edition hardbound again, but like I'm certain he'll probably continue to publish these. Like you're not missing out forever because you didn't do this Kickstarter. And my immediate thought was kind of like, why is someone who, as I said, already has like all of this going? Using a platform that is typically used for, like, small projects that need capital. And often also could be used by, like, small publisher... Or small independent publishers trying to publish their first novel. And they might work for years to get this Kickstarter to get one run of their novel printed. And he's able to reach his goal in under an hour. And surpassed five million in about two hours. I
0: just... So- something doesn't add up to me yeah I feel I feel weird about him as a hugely successful hugely popular white cis man in the publishing space using this platform this way it it just it just doesn't quite like just do a pre-order campaign through your publisher you know like why are you turning to the crowd as if it's like their job to give you the capital. I don't know. I think a lot of the things about this project are really cool. And then a lot of them are just not quite adding up. And I just, I just feel pretty weird about it. I think that if he had uh, the exact same arrangement,
1: you pay $500 plus shipping for everything, or you pay just, you know, the minimum for the eBooks or the audiobooks, but through his website and not, and strictly as like presented as a pre-order, I would be like, oh, okay, this makes sense. But the fact that it's like, yeah, as, as a crowdfunding campaign, it just really... I don't love it. And it just... I'm, I don't know. There have been some tweets from authors of color, specifically black women, talking about this as well. Like Kaylin Bayron. And she... She tweeted something about it, and it's very interesting to me because, and I don't want to put any words in in her mouth or anything like that, but that's kind of, I didn't think too much about the Kickstarter, and I saw her tweet, and I was like, you know what? Let me go actually look at this and see, like, what's going on.
0: It's like the implication that this has for the publishing industry as a whole. I mean, we don't don't fully understand what that implication is, but there certainly is an implication, right? And I think it's just trying to parse what does this mean for publishing? What does this mean for other authors? I've seen a bunch of Twitter threads about how probably Brandon Sanderson is the only person who could have pulled this off on this scale, which is, of course, extremely impressive about his his fan base and their willingness to participate in this kind of marketing, which that's... I'm not trying to say that negatively. I think that his fan base is just uniquely situated for this kind of event. And, you know, clearly there are very few, if any other... Authors who could generate this level of buzz and support. Um, so, I don't, I don't know if this is something that is replicable even on a slightly smaller scale. I don't know if it's something we want to encourage to be replicated on any sort of scale. Yeah. I, don't know. I was going
1: to say, I'm interested to see how it plays out for the publishing industry as a whole, which as a consumer appears like completely unchanged for the entire time I've been cognizant of making like purchases, meaning not when I was a child, um, that the publishing industry works the same way. You go like present your work and they're like, yeah, we'll print it or yeah, we won't and we can change all these things about it. But is this changing the publishing industry? Because as established, like he works with a really well-known publisher for a majority of his works. So what is it also saying to the publishing industry when something like this, the opportunity to get not only content, but, like, other receivable items takes off in such a way. I, I don't know. Maybe it'll come to nothing. Maybe I'm being, like, optimistic about change because I think the publishing industry needs change. But, again, this is why we kind of wanted to open with this and just be, like, we don't have a lot of coherent thoughts or conclusions. There's just a huge event that seems to probably predicate a, something, but we don't yeah, know what and yet. The other
0: thing that I'll mention to everything that you just said is that the only change that I've seen to the publishing industry in our lifetime really has been recently. It seems like there has been a push towards in- indie publishing and a twist towards uh, destigmatizing it. And I definitely have seen that. But I don't I don't know what this implies for that. Right. Because this is not indie publishing. Right. This is something else.
1: Right. Like my gut reaction to that is like it probably means nothing for indie publishing because like this isn't indie publishing and I don't think someone like Sanderson would come at it from an indie publishing like viewpoint in any way but that is not based in fact that's just like a feeling based on the way he's operated for so many years with his publishing is that like he's not concerned about indie publishing as a as a function of publishing
0: Right, I'm just saying, I think that this feels like a third option somehow. And I don't love the, what that might, how that might affect indie publishing. You know, indie publishing already, it's really hard to get um, respect. It's hard to get noticed if you're an indie publisher. And I feel like that's kind of slowly been changing. And then implementing this as like another option, I think is gonna maybe make it harder for indie publishers again. I don't know. I. I don't know what this portends um, and we'll definitely be interested to see how this shakes out over the next weeks and months and years, but it it certainly is very interesting and very strange.
1: I think it could have some parallel tracks to, like, major music artists not signing labels vibes. Like, I don't have deep, deep connections to that yet, but I've, like, in the past, five years in country music, there's been like a whole like, you're a sellout if you go to the label, which is a whole nother conversation I'm not trying to have, but more like there are a lot more people in country music who are huge popular artists who didn't sign with a label right away to get huge and popular. So I'll be interested to see like if we start to see some more of that in this third option range, but I don't know. Um
0: Is this the Taylor Swift re recording her masters of the publishing industry? Only time will tell.
1: And on that note, we can tell you about a story that we recently read.
0: You know what? I'm not even mad about that. I really like that. That was funny. I'm going to give you that one.
1: Yes. Yes. Powered by mac and cheese. Great transition. (laughs) Six Crimson Cranes by Elizabeth Lim.
0: Yes, Six Crimson Cranes. I love this book. You may remember if you're a pod listener that this was on my top five of top five reads of 2021. And if you don't remember it, don't worry, neither did Bailey. Correct. And I did not
1: reserve it at the library until January 25th, which means I almost certainly did not reserve it at the library due to Katie talking about it. (laughs) <laughs> so really, like, I i don't know. I don't know. But I read it. And Katie saw it on my story graph and was like, oh, have we talked about this yet?
0: Yeah, we were going through. I was going through Bailey's Goodreads and Storygraph, just trying to find a book that we both had read recently that we maybe wanted to talk about in an episode. And I was like, Oh yeah, what did you think about Six Crimson Cranes? You didn't even tell me that you'd read it. And she was like, Oh, I didn't know that you had read it. And I was like, Okay, you certainly did at some point.
1: Right. And I, I did say that in the message. To be fair, I said like, This is a hundred percent on my brain. I believe that you read it, uh, and I see. I see why you really liked it.
0: <laughs> and again. This is not coming from a place of shade because my brain is Swiss cheese. Uh, So I, I do not ever hold it against anyone else for forgetting something because I'm very capable of forgetting. I just thought it was kind of funny.
1: Yeah, I really liked it and reading it independently, or so my brain thought, meant that I didn't have a lot of expectations associated with it, which can sometimes change how you receive the novel basically if you've got all these high expectations you can be hyped up for something which some novels live up to it like obviously i hyped up legend born so much for katie and she still loved it uh but this one i got to experience on my own and then now we get to talk about our thoughts tm
0: (laughs) yes we do as always, have thoughts. We have some other interesting stuff to talk about as well. But first, I figured we'd start off with a very short summary for those that haven't read the book.
1: I realize we haven't done this recently on book episodes. This episode will contain spoilers of this book.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh, we do keep forgetting it. I feel like it's implied by listening to our podcast now that it has spoilers, but you're right that we should say it more often.
1: I I mean, I would think that if you're like listening to a podcast about a book that it would contain spoilers, but I just, before anyone else moves forward at this point, this things will happen in this story that if you haven't read it, you will now learn about those things.
0: So six crimson cranes is about Shiori, who is a princess with six older brothers who she loves and a stepmother that she doesn't love. And she's on her way to like meet her betrothed for like their betrothal ceremony and the kingdom, is, like, is magic out- outlawed or just frowned upon? Basically?
1: I don't think that it's outlawed. I, and I don't think it's, like, frowned upon. I think they tried to, like, just get rid of it. And if you show signs of magic, you will be, like, removed or something. But I don't think it's, like, codified.
0: Okay. Anyway, they they don't like magic, but she has magical powers, and she has bewitched a paper crane named Kiki that is her, like, sidekick throughout the whole book, which is very good. And I love Kiki. And Kiki is iconic. And Kiki flies off, and so she's trying to hide her magic powers and her magic paper crane, and so she chases after it and ends up crashing into a lake where she is saved by a dragon, Yes. Yeah. So she's, I mean, she's saved by the dragon. That sets off this
1: whole chain of events that essentially ends up with her, her stepmother cursing her.
0: Yeah, her stepmother turns her six brothers into cranes, the titular six crimson cranes, if you will. And also curses Shiori with putting a bowl over her head so that nobody can, like, see her face or recognize her. And she curses her with a vow of silence where if Shiori says anything, one of her brothers will die. So, like, every word she says, one of her brothers will die, basically.
1: Right. And so the story is basically her going through. She starts out in this small town and... an inn owner basically takes pity on her and is like you can work for me but also you're like stupid and worthless and i'm gonna make your life hell
0: yeah i was gonna say takes pity on is maybe not the right word because the inn owner is very mean but she does give shiori a place to live at least
1: right and food but then yes and then some soldiers come they're looking for the lost princess and princes and one of the soldiers offers um, Shiori like a little talisman of protection. If he ever, if she ever goes to his particular castle, they'll take her in. Um, and he does this when he finds her snooping through his stuff.
0: Yeah, this soldier is really nice and hot. And then she meets a really rude soldier who she learns is her betrothed. But then later on, she figures out that her betrothed and the really nice soldier actually switched names so the really nice soldier is the one she was supposed to marry
1: yes and she does eventually decide to leave the inn she travels to she's in the middle of traveling to this castle when she gets captured by people who but they think that she stole the talisman they treat her really horribly they make her sleep in a cellar etc oh hold on i skipped the most important part I forgot she met up with her brothers before she got taken to the castle.
0: Yes, she meets up with her brothers who are only human in the evening. And they all figure out that what they need to do is steal a pearl, like a dragon pearl that their stepmother has. And to do that, they have to weave a net out of these really sharp stinging nettle things that burn Shiori's hands yes and they like burn her hands when she works with them so she does end up
1: getting captured taken to this castle they treat her like dirt but it's fine because with the uh dungeon hole in the ground that they make her sleep in is the perfect place to work on weaving this net then when nice hot soldier returns he's like what the heck are you doing here no you must come live in the castle and they all start to include her and all of this, there is a little bit of, like, local drama intrigue that helps move the plot along to getting her back to her brothers with this finished net. And then the ending is is a bit of a twist and a blur, um, because she does end up managing to meet back up with her brothers, but we find out that, the like, there was... A demon pretending to be one of the people in the court at the castle. I don't remember anyone's name. That's the problem with this book. So I'm having like a... I'm trying to repeat it without knowing the names.
0: <laughs> oh, I, I can I can give you names. So the the demon that's like pretending to be a mean girl is named Zer, Zarina. And then her betrothed is named Takan. And... Takan also has a little sister named Megari, who is really cute and sweet and really likes Shiori. And the evil stepmother's name is Rekama. Okay. So, anyways, turns out
1: Zarina is actually, like, a demon who's there to use the... Ends up wanting the Starnet. But don't worry, because Shiori defeats them all and finds out that her evil stepmother actually did all of this to protect them.
0: Mm -hmm. that was honestly quite a big twist was that the evil stepmother was not evil i thought that that was really interesting and well done i
1: do have thoughts about that like for for the the thoughts section not the summary section yeah no they're good they're they're agreeable thoughts i just didn't want to get sidetracked into it like immediately right now
0: yeah what i'm learning is that everybody should hire us to summarize their books we do a really great job that was
1: absolutely excellent okay you know what if if you're feeling (laughs) overwhelmed and confused pause here read the book. Come back.
0: Yeah, I promise it's way more, like, interesting and captivating than we probably just made it sound. Um, but there's lots of characters, lots of adventure, uh, lots of fun side quests, basically.
1: Right. That's what I was trying to get at, that the local the local drama is sort of side quests. But they do play into the larger plot eventually. Um, but I, overall, I really liked it uh we are terrible at summaries we continue to be terrible at summaries
0: (laughs) i know i really i had such high hopes for this one i like pulled up the goodreads and i was trying to basically go off of the goodreads but i obviously i i started down a tangent and then the tangents multiplied and then here we are but you know sometimes you can only do what you can do
1: right i did pull up a summary as well but it i don't know you guys didn't get to hear the unedited version of our gracier episode (laughs) count your blessings and, never will. and you never will but I promise this one might give it a run for its money
0: no because we kept this one shorter That's So this true. one even though it was a little rambly it is fine because it only took you know a few minutes as opposed to literally 40
1: yes so anyway on to like <laughs> actually discussing this book in concrete terms I really really liked it I thought it was great. I think it's an interesting storytelling voice that we don't get to hear a lot. Which I know, Katie, you had stuff to say about the storytelling yesterday when we were talking about this. And I was like, stop, stop, don't do it. Save it for the pod.
0: <laughs> yep. Must must discuss it live.
1: So what were your thoughts on the like storytelling style?
0: So I, I said this a little bit in our year-end wrap-up episode, uh, and I don't think I have too much to expand upon, but basically it read like a fairy tale, right? It read with the same like story beats, the same cadence, even the same like verbiage, I guess. Like It felt very much like we were being told a story, to- like told a fairy tale around a fire or something as a little kid. It was very uh, enchanting and captivating in that way, and I really think that that added to, like, the ambiance and to the narrative in a very interesting way.
1: Yes, I agree that that the way that that storytelling was done was so artful to recreate that feel. And I don't want to use the word detached necessarily because I don't think it was detached, but the it was enough removed in some ways that you weren't feeling the same way you do with some, like, first person character povs
0: yeah it, it was like living in that gray space between third person limited and third person om- omniscient right because we were we were with shiori we were mainly in her perspective but we were not bound to her perspective i guess so like we could get inside of her head but there was also like a little bit of breaking the fourth wall a little bit of just like fairy tale omniscient narrator here and there
1: Right, and I thought that was perfect.
0: Yeah, that's something that I think is hard to get right, and I think it was really well-balanced and interesting without, like, losing its voice. Yes. The one thing
1: that I didn't like as much was the pacing. I felt that the pacing was uneven. That's fair. When we had moments of action, we had lots of action. And the end, the like, it was definitely a crescendo, because it just, like, went from, like, oh, she's going to ride off, and you assume there's, like, a bit of a journey, but no, it suddenly became, like, the final battle, quote-unquote.
0: Yeah. You know what? I totally see that. I think that a lot of the early plot was very meandering.
1: Yes. Um,
0: There, you know, Shiori went on a lot of a journey, and there were lots of stops on that journey, and I, I agree that... It was definitely more slow-paced for a lot of it. And then, like, punctuated by pieces of action and pieces of high stakes. And then, of course, that that huge ramp-up at the end. I agree. I don't have as much of an issue with it. I think that pacing, when it's uneven, if it's done well, it sort of more just, like, mirrors real life almost. Or it makes you feel like you are on the journey as opposed to, like, It's been three chapters, here's an action scene. It's been three chapters, here's an action scene. Which I'm not suggesting that there are other books that do that. I just... I I agree that the pacing was uneven. I just don't necessarily see it as a problem, I guess.
1: I wasn't... I was actually going to say that I don't necessarily think it's a problem. Because I think it contributes to um, Shiori learning something at each little step on her journey, in a way.
0: Which just makes it feel even more fairy tale like right like you have to go and you have to learn a a lesson
1: yes we've got like the moral or whatever uh like so yes i was gonna say the pacing is uneven but i think that's for a reason because i think we're we're slowing down into the lull to get shown what the lesson is gonna be and when we learn the lesson we're able to wrap it up in that quick action part and then do it again
0: yeah, I agree completely. Sorry to have sorry to steal your point before I let you make it. I just jumped right in there.
1: That's okay. I'm glad to know we're on the same page for that. At least it's just I felt more strongly about the uneven pacing as a general thing than you were like, "Oh, but if it works, it works." And I was like, "Well, yeah, that's I was going to get there
0: yeah i agree i what something that i really liked about this book is is shiori as a character she felt very strong and she felt very 16 years old right this is not one of those books where we would have to make the argument that like why did they even age them down into being ya appropriate like shiori is clearly a 16 year old princess right and you know we love age-appropriate characters We do. We stand age-appropriate characters. She's very, like, she's not annoying, necessarily, but she she's still a kid and that's, it comes out in a, in a way that I liked. I don't know. That sentence got no, away for
1: me. No, I really, I understand what you're saying, because one of the points that I put in my notes was that it started out a little bit of, like, the petulant princess trope. And I think that's because she was 16. Because it's not, and it's not even like she was doing all that much as a petulant princess. She was just having a very small worldview of, like, what she wanted and what she was going to do for it. And that is a very, like, childlike thing, is to have this, this worldview that only revolves around you and your immediate wants and needs, such as, like, deciding to, like, take Kiki, lose Kiki, and then, you know, end up in the in the lake at her betrothal ceremony, thus offending her betrothed family and ultimately, like, playing a part in the kingdom starting to fall apart a little bit i think that that's very childlike but in a as you said like a believable reasonable way and then we see her grow because again like journey storytelling character arc
0: yeah there's a really good payoff in particular for the, the beginning, the whole story kicks off because she doesn't want to marry some stinky old prince she's never met or whatever. And so she runs away instead of, like, facing her responsibilities. And she has this image in her head of what her betrothed is like. And she thinks he's this, like, grumpy, mean, brown-nosing, stupid prince guy. And eventually she meets him and, of course, finds out who he really is and he's this like sweet wonderful hot thoughtful dude and she's like oh well i made a mistake there and then they take it even further where he had like been writing her letters since they were kids and like stories to try and get to know her better and let her get to know him and she had just been like i don't think she threw the letters out but she just never once opened one of his letters and they're just like in a stack in a drawer somewhere
1: Yeah, that's exactly what it was, is she just, like, put them away. She was like, ah, letters from my stinky betrothed.
0: Bye. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Exactly. And so when he's, like, telling her, he's like, yeah, I wrote you all these letters. And she's like, oh, well, he's a really nice guy. And I was kind of an ass about this. And she, like, there's a, a direct thing that she did that was, like, stupid and immature that she gets to realize, like, oh, I was being stupid and immature.
1: Right. I really liked that too, and I really liked their relationship in the book because it also felt really realistic. Like, I think a lot of times, even in YA books where there's romance, it's like immediately all into to love, all into this, and I felt that this one was like subtle enough and slow enough over time that it felt much more believable for her to like realize that she was being an ass to him. And then beyond that, start to realize that, like, maybe she actually did think he was okay and, and, like, interested in getting to know him better and things like that and being like, wow, he is really thoughtful. Wow, he is really knowledgeable and caring and all of that, as opposed to the impression that she had that he was just a dumb kid from a different castle.
0: Yeah, it was really well done. It was really sweet and captivating and it you know it follows along with that fairy tale vibe without falling into a lot of fairy tale tropes of like insta love or like faded love it it like is those things but it also is much it's done much more realistically i guess right
1: it especially in like disney fairy tales which is the main form of fairy tale consumption for the modern millennial um it does feel like insta-love, it's like right away they're in love, oh my gosh, isn't this so sweet, and there's not a lot of art to that storytelling, necessarily for that, like, aspect of the storytelling so I feel like in Six Crimson Cranes, we really, Elizabeth Lim was able to really explore making that an actual storyline so I really like that part
0: yeah, it was really well done
1: I also really liked the, uh, the twist as we like briefly touched on earlier, having the evil stepmother actually like not be evil, but use the magic that she's been hiding this entire time to like convince her children that she was, her stepchildren, that she was terrible and that they should hate her all in order to protect like the kingdom. I was like, what?
0: Listen, I there are very few tropes that I love more than someone who is like so noble and self-sacrificing that they let everybody hate them and think that they're evil because that is what is best for everyone else. Um I think it's there's just something so like powerful and intimate about a character that will will do that and I was delighted that that was the twist here.
1: Same. And then my heart also absolutely like freaking broke when you find out that like all these memories that shiori has of her mother of like making this special soup
0: they were all rakama they were
1: all rakama all along they were all the evil stepmother because the evil stepmother was so upset that shiori was upset at losing her mother that she created these memories and used her magic to help convince shiori that they were like of her actual mother and i was just like So not only did she do all of, like, she actually did do these things with Shiori, then she then had to sacrifice and make it so Shiori hated Rakima. I just, um, like, and this was all in the very last part of the book. This was all, like, very much at the, the last second dump when Shiori goes and actually saves, well, traps the demon. Shiori, she already gets saved a little bit by rakima but she also saves rakima a little bit and they make the decision to do what needs to be done which is to return the dragon pearl to its rightful owner which is what the second book will describe
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and i think that a lot of the stuff about the dragons we really didn't touch on it in our fumbling little recap but it's all so interesting and like in the background of the whole story right until it's in the forefront you know it's it's sort of it seems like a far away problem which i guess it it is because she's dealing with much more immediate like how is she going to get food type of problems like how is she going to survive type of problems but then it's really well balanced i think between like it looming over the horizon and then suddenly we were there
1: Oh, I thought it was excellently done that we've basically created an entire story that hinges on, like, what the dragons are doing, but could have been written completely devoid of dragons with just a few, like, tweaks to how these powers came to be. But turns out it was them all along, and now we've got this setup for a second story that's going to be presumably just as good, but doesn't have to hit all the same notes, because the second story will be about the dragons and not about Shiori's struggle personally. With her and her six crimson cranes.
0: 100%. I also think, and this is maybe just because I'm, you know, Western, but, like, these dragons are done in a way that I'm not familiar, familiar with. It's it's They're very exciting in that they're, like, shape-shifting and, like, kind of mischievous and they have their own society and they're these ancient... And I think that's something that's, like, pretty... Like, at least much more prevalent in, like, Eastern dragon stories, but it was really interesting, um, and I really enjoyed yes. getting that exposure to it.
1: The dragon lore is completely different because they're not like warriors that like humans use to to fight with or whatever, like you do see in a lot of like Western media.
0: Yeah, and um, and Saryu, her her dragon friend, is like kind of like a, a mischievous type of. Not quite a trickster, but he's he's in that vein, and I really like that as well.
1: It also seems like he may be, like, we might be getting a little hint of him being, um like, on the outs a little bit with his own dragon culture. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays into it. All in all, I I really thought the book has so many well done aspects so many interesting little tidbits and i'm pretty sure upon a second read i'll catch a lot more and probably like a lot more little foreshadowing notes almost that are in there
0: you know what i bet you'll also catch a lot more of on a second reading is all of the fairy tales that are like referenced and that the book is inspired by and based on and I we're gonna have a little make fun of katie moment because I this whole time have been talking about how this book is like a beautiful fairy tale and it never once occurred to me that it is based on not one but like 10 existing fairy tales. This is your oh my god the book
1: with the main character Juliet and Roma is a Romeo (laughs) and Juliet retelling one must like it's only fair.
0: It literally is. It literally is my moment. So we both have a, a, a foot and mouth, brain bad, dumb moment. Um, I'm sure we'll have more. So I'm glad that anyway, we're balanced.
1: Katie found a. She found Elizabeth Lim's TikTok where she like lists these fairy tales that she used for like inspiration or like loose framework, etc. And so Katie's idea was that we could go through them and see if we can like pull these elements.
0: Yeah. So I thought I would I would list them and go through them. Uh, there are lots of Eastern and lots of Western fairy tales, which I really like that it's a blend. And also, I think what makes me feel kind of the stupidest is like the the main one that I think like the bulk of the premise is taken from is a Brothers grim fairy tale that I just was not familiar with, I guess. Um, so that we're actually going to start at the bottom of our list, Bailey, with The Wild Swans, which is a Brothers grim fairy tale about... A widowed king with 11 sons and a daughter who remarries, a like, an evil, wicked witch lady stepmother. And she turns the 11 stepsons into swans, and they can only be human for 15 minutes at night. And she, like, forces them to fly away. And then she's trying to, like, win over the princess, but can't because the princess is too stubborn. So instead, she banishes her and makes her unrecognizable by dirtying her face And then the daughter finds her swan brothers who fly her to a foreign land where she's safe. I think there's also the vow of silence where if she speaks a word, her brothers die. Uh, A handsome king of a faraway land falls in love with her. There's also a thing where she has to, like, weave stinging nettles, but I think it's like she has to make them into shirts, and the shirts will help her brothers regain their human shape. Uh, At the end, she is she's put on trial for witchcraft until her swan brothers rescue her as she finishes the last shirt and returns them to human and so everyone's like oh she's you know this is a sign from the heavens or whatever and so then she marries the king so a few things there sound familiar yeah i was going
1: to say obviously this is a, there's a lot here in terms of like the 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 king with the sons and daughters they get turned into birds they've do stinging nettles but it all is is different enough that it And it's like, and the singing nettles come in in that they're going to be a net to capture someone else, not fix the cranes, etc. So, yeah, I can see where that's coming in. I understand that.
0: Yeah, this is the one that I think... If we were going to call this book a retelling of any of the fairy tales, this is the one that I would I would say it probably fits the most with. But of course, there are lots of other plot points, like you were saying, and there are nine other fairy tales that it's drawing inspiration from. So um, she really, I think, has done a really good job of weaving these fairy tales together to make it interesting and to make it its own.
1: Because some of the things that were some of the next fairy tales are going to have the elements that I just said were different from like the wild swans. So it's all going to be the way that's combined, but, um, I, do we want to go up from here?
0: Uh, I was just going to scroll back up and start from the top. Uh, that was just the one I figured we'd start with since it feels, it feels like the, the one that is like the heaviest basis, I guess. But this is probably the one that is the second heaviest basis. This is an Eastern fairy tale called The Girl with the Wooden Bowl or Hachikazuki and apologies if I butcher that, um... But anyway, a beautiful girl's elderly mother makes her promise to wear a wooden bowl to cover her beauty before she dies, um, before the mother dies. Her father remarries and her stepmother and, like, the world at large is really cruel to the girl with the wooden bowl in her head. But eventually, a lord's son falls in love with her. And after they marry, the bowl breaks into many pieces and the pieces turn into precious gems. So, obviously, yeah, that
1: is, as Katie said, the second most common one that because she already has a bowl on her head, um, and it does break when her and her betrothed sort of realize that they're going to do this thing. Uh the bowl breaks, it protects her, and I I think I had actually like when I started reading Six Crimson Cranes, I was like, I've heard of like the girl with the wooden bowl, but I never would have been able to like connect it to the actual story that it it was based on. I just was like, oh yeah, the wooden bowl covers her face and she can still see and talk and eat, etc.
0: Yeah. I also want to point out, I just want to not really point out. I just want to say that a lot of these fairy tales that are not like Brothers Grimm or Hans Christian Andersen, I was straight up not familiar with. And so I've, I've read several summaries, but if anything is, different from a version you might have heard or especially if anything is straight up wrong please feel free to let us know because this is just a quick cursory googling to like get the gist of the fairy tales and see what we can see was inspired by the fairy tales in the book so i definitely do not take full responsibility for you know being 100 percent accurate with fairy tales but wanted to get a feel for them
1: right and on that note the next one on the list is snow white and the only summary katie has added to the notes is We know Snow White.
0: (laughs) Okay, that was just to avoid writing out the whole thing.
1: I know. Maybe not everybody listening
0: to the podcast knows Snow White, so we'll do a very brief summary for that one, too. But Snow White is a princess who has an evil stepmother who is afraid that Snow White is more beautiful than the stepmother, and so she um, banishes her and ends up, like, putting – she gives her a poison apple, right, that puts her under a sleeping spell – and uh, she's asleep until true love's kiss wakes her up. And she also hangs out in the forest with some hardworking dwarfs for a while before she's poisoned because she was banished.
1: Yes. um, I- I'm starting to gather a theme here and it's that no wonder stepmothers get like a bad rap because it seems like they're the source of much contention in every single one of these stories.
0: Yeah, they do really seem to be the the villain in every story, which I think we've like always sort of known. Like there's always a joke about like, oh, the, the evil stepmother, but like, oh, there there were lots of evil stepmothers. That's why it's a thing. Yeah. Snow White, um I don't see that many direct elements of Snow White. You I think don't think of any? No, I don't really either because
1: at no point is she like I the only time I guess she's like banished on her own is when her brothers leave her in the cave and then she like wanders off, but there's no Unless
0: we're talking about the poisoning, but Shiori doesn't get poisoned. Right, but there is definitely an, an element of poison with the, uh, what's it called, the final breath, or whatever the poison's called, at yeah. the castle. There's also, like you mentioned, with her being in the cave could be kind of similar to like when Snow White is hanging out with the dwarves. Um, this one I definitely don't see as strongly, other than just your, your basic fairy tale tropes, like evil stepmother, Same. princess, banished.
1: Uh, the next one is the legend of Chang'e, the Moon
0: Goddess. Hmm. And I do not know how to say that, and I'm not going to butcher either. it. So I'll just call it. I'll call it the Moon Goddess. Um. But the gist of this one is that the Moon Goddess steals an elixir of immortality from her husband, who is a legendary archer. And then she escapes to become the goddess of the moon. I probably should have put more notes than that one. I was trying really hard to summarize, and I think I might have oversummarized that one. No, but I I see it because isn't there?
1: There's a story within this story about becoming the moon. Correct?
0: Yes, but I read it in like October, so I I do not quite remember. what Yes, that
1: was. all I all I have is like a a little sense of like. There was definitely something deeply related to the moon and this is probably the moon goddess is probably the story that it's all based on.
0: Also, what was the what was the story about like Kama's sister and why she ran away? Is it is it that one? It could be
1: that one. It could be that one.
0: We're doing a really good job. We're we're on, we're in top form right now. Yay. Uh well anyway, Again, probably should have summarized that one better, but definitely recognize elements of it. Um, Then number four is The Legend of the Bamboo Cutter, which is about an old and humble man who's a bamboo cutter, and he he sees, like, a strange glittering log while he's working, and inside is a tiny, beautiful girl. He takes her home, and he and his wife, who don't have any children of their own, raise her as their daughter. And the branch of bamboo that she was found in starts producing golden gems. And so the bamboo cutter becomes rich. Uh, The girl grows into a normal, human-sized, beautiful woman. And eventually men come from all over wanting to marry her, including the emperor. But she refuses all of her suitors and warns that if she's taken by force, she'll become a shadow and disappear forever. Eventually, she decides she needs to go back to where she came from, which is the moon. Oh, the and moon so again. Emperor, okay, yeah, lots of moon, lots of moon stuff in in these fairy tales. Uh, the emperor arrives to try and prevent her from leaving because he wants to marry her. But one night, a cloud descends from the moon with a luminous carriage for her, and she gets in the carriage and she leaves behind a letter and a small bottle. Wow, a small bottle with the elixir of life for the emperor, and then leaves. And he is frightened by what she left. And orders that the letter and the bottle be taken to the top of the most sacred mountain and burned. And to this day, it's remembered that when there is smoke on Mount Fuji, that is the letter and the elixir being burned.
1: So I definitely see, um, once again, the return to the moon. I definitely think that is Rakima's sister. There's also the um, glittering log and things like that. Because the special dragon nettle has glows on the inside. That's part of the problem when... Shiori is working with it is that it, it emits light and so she can only work on it in secret places. Uh, so I, that that's the main one I see from that. Do you see anything else, really?
0: No, I think you got the right ones. I think, um, I don't know if we're m- missing anything about the Elixir of Life, but that's now been mentioned in two stories. That was the Elixir of Immortality from the Moon Goddess and now in this story, too.
1: This is speculation, but maybe that's going to come up in the second novel more and so there's like bits and pieces of setup for an elixir of immortality in the first one but we haven't seen the payoff yet definitely the next fairy tale is madam white snake um and this katie says this is long but it's the stepmother basically which makes sense because i'm assuming from the name it is about a woman who has a way with snakes and one of the things that Makes Shiori think that Rakima is evil is her garden full of snakes to chase her, over and over again. So, I, I I think this is the stepmother's ability to use her magic to have snakes do her bidding.
0: Uh, sort of, yeah. So this one it was just kind of hard to summarize into a few lines because it's very every like summary I could find of it it was still pretty long. But to do my best, there is a white snake and a green snake and they practice taoist magical arts and they eat something that gives them 500 years worth of magical powers and uh i guess a a man gives them the pills or, or is how they get the pills or something and so they feel grateful to this man and the some A beggar on the bridge catches the green snake and wants to, like, kill it and sell it, I guess. And so the white snake transforms into a woman, buys the green snake from the beggar, and saves the green snake's life. So the green snake is grateful to it and regards the white snake as an older sister. Many years later, the white snake, as a woman, marries the man who earlier gave them the things that give them magical powers Uh, some other stuff happens. There's a bad guy that doesn't like the snakes. I think it's like a tortoise, like a tortoise spirit that doesn't like the snakes. I'm doing a really bad job of this one, but there's other stuff that happens. Uh, Eventually the tortoise spirit basically like outs the white snake lady as a snake and causes her husband to like die of shock. And then they manage to revive the husband. And then he still loves his wife, even though she's a snake. Um, And then they defeat the bad guy. Again, I'm doing a very bad job of this one. So apologies to anyone who knows this this story and um, knows how it goes. But those are the basic beats, I think.
1: I think that's going to come into play more in the second one, maybe with like uh, Shiori's father being released from the, the slumber that the town is put in sort of thing.
0: Yeah, and also, I mean, again, you nailed it with the stepmother and the snakes, although um, I might have misremembered that she, like, was a snake. I think for some reason I thought that. She had a
1: snake-like face, which is during using her magic, which the dragon said that was a revelation of her true inner nature or something. So, again, I think we might see more of that come out.
0: The next one on the list is Thumbelina, which is another one that I, I... I don't see a ton. I also, I definitely have like saw Thumbelina as a child, but it's not on the same like level of iconic fairy tales for me. Um, but Thumbelina is about a woman who like asks a witch for help to get a child and is presented with a barley corn, which she plants and it grows, and out, out of the sprout comes a tiny girl named Thumbelina. Uh, who the woman raises, and then eventually Thumbelina is carried off by a toad who wants her as a bride for her son. Escapes with the help of a friendly fish and a butterfly. She's captured by a beetle, who eventually is gets sick of her, and so she runs away. This part I think is maybe the most like it, where she is. It's like winter, and she's struggling to like stay alive and, and protect herself and find resources. She makes friends with a field mouse who starts encouraging her to marry a mole but she doesn't want to marry the mole because he lives underground and she doesn't want to like live underground for the rest of her life she almost goes through with it but then she escapes and meets a tiny flower fairy prince and she weds him and receives a pair of wings
1: i think yes the um the continual like escape new problem escape new problem escape new problem is probably the main inspiration i see from this because obviously shiori is not a tiny person and does not do a lot of interfacing with wildlife.
0: <laughs> no. Other than, of course, her brother's the six crimson cranes. But
1: they're not wildlife.
0: Yeah, you're correct.
1: I'm being pedantic. <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> I mean, it is our favorite thing to do, so that's fine.
1: The next one is Rumpelstiltskin which again is like pretty easy to summarize for a Western audience that sort of already knows Rumpelstiltskin. Uh, But he, he says that he, his daughter can spin straw into gold. The king locks up this girl with the straw and the spinning wheel and is like, spin me a bunch of gold. Gold, then Rumpelstiltskin comes in and helps her actually do this because like, The king keeps being like, make more, make more. Um, But then, because she does this, the king then marries her. But she owes her firstborn daughter to Rumpelstiltskin, the imp, because he spun all that straw into gold for her.
0: Mm -hmm. Unless she can say his name, which he's never told her. This one I think we see most in, there, like, there's a literal, there's a spinning wheel, and she has to spin the stinging nettle star things into a net. And she does that by, like, breaking into Zarina, in quotes, is room um, to use the spinning wheel. So I think there probably are, maybe are also some elements there with, like, Zarina not being who she appears to be or whatever. But I, I feel like may, mainly this is the spinning wheel yes there's also like
1: the literal they have to come up with the evil stepmother's like true name before they can before shiori can Mm, turn her brothers back into humans full time which ends up changing like a little bit due to the fact that they like find out the tragic backstory of rakima etc but like there is a literal like find this person's name and speak it to save yourself
0: you're totally right i honestly had forgotten that part but you're correct The next one on the list is The Emperor's Flowers, which is about a young man who lives in China and adores the emperor of the land because he has heard that the emperor loves flowers and and has a beautiful garden, and this young man loves flowers and and growing things. The emperor was growing old and had no sons or successors, and so he sent word to all the young men in the land announcing that he would hand out seeds to anyone who wanted to grow a flower. And I think it was like implied or explicitly like a competition of sorts and the the person who grew the best flower would become the emperor's successor so the young man fills his blue pot with moss and compost and he stands in line and he receives a seed um, and he takes it home and he cares for it really really well and nothing sprouts even though all of his other plants were thriving so He tries everything he can think of, but, you know, nothing happens, and it's just a pot with a seed and some compost. So when it's time for everyone to bring their plants back to the emperor for inspection, he brings his sad empty pot, and every other person there has a beautiful flower growing out of the seed, and... It turns out that the Emperor had, like, boiled the seeds before handing them out, so they were never going to grow. And every other person lied so that they could, like, say they had the best flower, but our young man tells the truth. And so the Emperor names him his successor. I do not see this one. I really don't either. Um, The most I can say, maybe, is that, like, Takan, her betrothed, like, she thinks he's going to be, like... A stupid stinky boy but he turns out to be a really like honest and generous man
1: uh yeah but that's kind of a stress i I don't really see it honestly like the whole time you've been summarizing and i've been like racking my brains trying to come up with any connection and i haven't yet so I, i don't really know about that one i think that will either time will tell or we just aren't familiar enough with this particular fairy tale to pick up the pieces in the book that we just read because i've I've not heard of the emperor's flowers before
0: yeah i think probably the the biggest similarity that i can see is just the the like general theme of like honesty and like morality is better than not doing that i don't know
1: Uh, i don't know the the final fairy tale that came from this tiktok that we're going to discuss is cinderella which is basically just, once again, an evil stepmother, two stepsisters who are cruel to Cinderella, make her do everything, treat her poorly. The king is going to have a ball to find someone for his prince or whatever. And Cinderella is basically not allowed to go because she has to clean the house because her stepfamily is extremely cruel to her. And a fairy godmother comes along and gives her a beautiful gown and makes her mice into beautiful Carriage drawing, horses, etc. Who can forget (laughs) Gus-Gus? But anyways, she has to be home by midnight or she loses all of these beautiful gifts her fairy godmother has given her. As she's fleeing the castle after meeting the prince, she leaves behind a glass slipper. It sets off this hunt for the prince to find the woman who fits the glass slipper, blah, blah, blah. The stepsisters actively try to prevent Cinderella from even figuring out because they're like, who would love you anyway? You're dirty, and gross, and not nearly as cool as us. And anyway, she falls in love with the prince, or the prince falls in love with her. The shoe fits. End of story.
0: They live happily ever after. You yeah, know, at first I was gonna say that I didn't really see this one, other than like again the general themes of like evil stepmother m- abusing her ch- her stepchild. But actually, I think this one fits really well in the part of the book where she's in Takan's castle and she's like having to basically be a servant and zarina really mean to her
1: yes i can definitely see that i mean in but instead of being like cinder ashes cinderella she it, it's the fish it's fish girl
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah so i could see that
0: so yeah those are the the 10 fairy tales that elizabeth Lim, according to her tiktok um most closely used or was inspired by for six crimson greens so i definitely see a lot of them again like you said bailey i'm sure more of them may start to shine through in the sequel or we're just not familiar enough with the stories but i think it was really interesting and i really enjoyed looking up and kind of learning about some of the fairy tales that we did not grow up on
1: right i actually didn't at first looking through the notes for this episode i didn't see Where Katie had put in the source. And so I was just like, wow, did Katie (laughs) notice all of these? And I just like am really not a critical reader. Jesus. But then she revealed that um, no, this is all from the author herself. So I feel slightly better about my ability to consume media.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I am not a fairy tale savant. Although I think that that would be something really cool to put on my resume. So, yeah, but there's still time. Your resume can tales. ever
1: be changing all the time.
0: <laughs> you're you're right. You're right. Uh, anything else you want to say about Six Crimson Cranes before we wrap it up, Bailey?
1: I don't think so. I think it's just a really good, enjoyable book, and it's probably a bit of a a breath of fresh air compared to other things that have been really popular lately. So, if you're looking for something like fun and new. That has a sort of fairy tale quality to it and is still very, very readable. Definitely check out Six Crimson Cranes.
0: Yeah, it's really charming. It's really, it's just an enjoyable read. And uh, we recommend it, and you know that everything that we recommend is good because we are right. And we should say it. Pour yourself a glass of wine. Let's start reading
1: between the lines never know what we might find yeah it could
0: be magic Oh. oh, oh. prose tinted glasses is hosted by oh, bailey utrecht and me katie phillips oh, oh. our logo is by baby truth collection and our theme song is by the very wonderful anna voss we'll be back in a couple of weeks to talk about the book of the month club see you then